Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. The cold-blooded murder of Chris Honey has sent shockwaves throughout the country and the world. Our grief and anger is tearing us apart. A white man full of prejudice and hate came to our country and committed a deed so foul that our whole nation now titters on the brink of disaster. Mandela Day, July 18th, is a global celebration and a national holiday in South Africa that honors the life and legacy of Nelson Mandela. The date marks his birthday and is a call to action for individuals, communities, and organizations to reflect on Mandela's values and principles to make a positive impact in their own communities. Nelson Mandela died in 2013 at the age of 95. Today, I'm in conversation with Justice Malela, one of South Africa's foremost political commentators and the author of the bestseller, We Have Now Begun Our Descent, How to Stop South Africa Losing Its Way. He has been a columnist for The Times in South Africa and written for The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, and The Financial Times. He now lives in New York. In this episode of The Short Fuse, we will be talking about his new book, The Plot to Save South Africa, The Week Mandela averted civil war and forged a new nation. Justice, welcome. Thank you for having me. Your book, published in April, is a narrative that takes us through 10 days, beginning on Easter weekend, April 10th, 1993, following the assassination of Chris Hani, a beloved Black leader and a Mandela protege by a Polish right-wing white supremacist named Janusz Wallace. The assassination of Chris Hani brought South Africa to the brink of civil war. On the day Chris Hani was assassinated, you were a 22-year-old rookie journalist and one of the first on the scene to cover the murder. In the plot to save South Africa, you reflect on this moment and the days following from the distance of 30 years and through your lens as a well-known political commentator and journalist, the perspective of history. Justice, before we talk about the book, what was it like for you growing up in South Africa under apartheid? In the words of Archbishop Michael Curry, the dark days, the days when Black South Africans were not allowed to walk on the country's beautiful white beaches, often without access to education. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a weird moment to be to be talking about the book and that time, uh, Elizabeth, because part of it, part of it is is almost you look back and you say, "Wow, did that really happen? Did I grow up like that?" Um, I, I have these flashes of memory, um, remembering walking in the streets of Johannesburg with my father and my family, and and you know, as you say, not being able to walk. 
uh, on the sidewalk because that was reserved for whites only. Um, and, you know, slivers and slivers of memory like that come back to you and you, you remember those things. So, so part of the book was about writing about that time, but also reflecting the hope of so many people like me um, who saw a new future, a new world um, in what Nelson Mandela and his comrades and, and people around me uh, were on the verge of achieving in 1992, 93, and, and finally 1994. So growing up in South Africa was, uh, <laughs> I, I'm loath to say it was hard because when you're growing up, even when it's, it's under conditions of deep, deep uh, apartheid as I was, um, I was lucky enough to have a family, a mother and father who loved me, brothers and sisters who were funny, um, erudite, uh, loved books, steered me towards certain things. So you have this, this, this gray area of, of how terrible apartheid was, and yet at the same time, these these memories of joy and happiness with family, with relatives, and so forth. But but as a system, it was horrific. Uh, black people had no land. Black people had no access to education. I grew up, I went to look for a job, found a job in Johannesburg. I was 22, as you say, uh, when these events took place. I in the village where I grew up, there was no electricity, there was no running water. Um, all these things were denied to black South Africans, not because they couldn't uh, be supplied, but because they were black, and that was part of what apartheid was like. So, so it's a uh, it's bitter memories, but but uh, I mean, I have to say for myself, um, bitter memories that are that I cannot allow to uh, dominate me because, because there was so much joy as well in that life, in that growing up. And, and, and I had the joy of my family, which, which really did steer me towards a different life and different dreams and dreams that perhaps have led to where I am today, uh, to wanting to write, to wanting to do all the things that I, I do now. Just to put this in historical context for everyone, Nelson Mandela had been released from prison in February 1990 after 27 years in prison. And he and the then president of South Africa, F.W. de Klerk, were holding talks to negotiate ending apartheid. So this came right in the middle of that. Then yes. perhaps you can describe... They weren't getting along so well at that moment, but negotiations were going on. Absolutely. So Nelson Mandela comes out on February 11, 1990, 27 years in prison, um, a horrific 27 years of South African life. When he comes out, people like me, I mean, uh, it was one of those moments when you when I then in 1990 said, well, this is it. I was 19 at the time. I, I thought freedom has arrived, but freedom doesn't quite arrive. Um, the negotiations start in March, 1990. 
Um, they, there is a lot of hope. Mandela is hopeful. Uh, FW declared is hopeful. Nelson Mandela says, um, um, FW Dietlerik, uh is, is a man of integrity, uh, and he's criticized for saying that. FW Dietlerik says, uh, Nelson Mandela is someone I can do business with. Mm-hmm. Uh, both men are criticized on both sides by people who say, how can you trust these guys? Uh, how can you say such nice things about the other side? Um, for freedom-loving South Africans, black and white, who wanted to see change, uh, people like me, it was huge, huge hope. We had a lot riding on this. We believed that the world was opening up the world was changing, uh, and that apartheid would be finally defeated. We thought the negotiations would go on for maybe a year, but 1991 came and went, and the negotiations were still going on. Um, political violence was was rampant at the time. On average, 4,000 people were being killed in violence between um, allegedly between the ANC of Nelson Mandela and other black political groupings, we we le- later learned that, in fact, it was the Clarence government and, and forces within that government who wanted to destabilize, destabilize that transition, who were who were sponsoring murderers and killers to to commit these uh, these crimes, and there were massacres, uh, uh, several massacres where upwards of 60, 70 people were killed at the time. So, so that period between 1990, 1990 and 1994 was one where your hopes went up one day, and the next day your hopes were dashed. Your dreams of freedom were raised, and the next day, those dreams were trampled on. It was a time of huge uncertainty. And so by 1993, when the events uh, that we're going to talk about happened, um, there'd been some hope a few days before that after months and months of Mandela and Hitler not even speaking to each other, speaking to each other through intermediaries, that the negotiations might be restarting. And then on the 10th of April, 1993, um, that roller coaster uh, takes a downturn. And that's when that's when Chris Hani is murdered and uh, and a period of despair enters the, the process again. You mentioned you talk in the book about sitting at your desk and then having this information come in and and leaving right away to go to the to the scene i wondered um justice if you could just share your most vivid memory from that moment and and i ask because i know that uh americans who are old enough can remember exactly where they were when martin luther king was shot exactly where they were when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And if you were in New York, you can absolutely have that moment in your mind on 9-11. Absolutely, no. Um, it, it was for South Africans uh, that moment too, a where were you moment. Even today in South Africa, you you just walk out and say, where were you when Chris Hani was murdered? And people will tell you almost exactly. In fact, 
many of the people I spoke to for the book would would say, yeah, I was doing this and so forth and so forth. And even if they can't remember much else afterwards, they remember that moment. So for me, uh, there were it's a double poignancy. Um, I was 22, as you say. I had been in what's called a cadet school where you're taught uh, daily journalism uh, at, the, at the company I worked for. And that weekend, the Easter weekend, which is a lot like Thanksgiving in the U.S., where people say, oh, everyone... People get out of get out of the city and go off to be with family and so forth. And and that weekend is a bit like that in South Africa. Mandela had taken off to his home in Kunu. FW de Klerk had done the same to his grandmother's farm in in the semi-desert in the Karoo. Um, many, many people were out of town. So for me and that's my colleagues, uh, the, the young rookies, trainees. We were asked to come to work that day, and I was I was ecstatic. It was wow! I'm getting my shot. This is my my chance for the big time, you know. So I arrived at the office on on Easter Saturday, the tenth of April. I you know I'm reading the Saturday Star, the Saturday version of the paper. I've got a cup of tea on my on my desk. It wasn't my desk. I just commandeered a desk. Um, and, you know, I don't expect to do anything that day. Um, all you are expected to do is field calls with people saying, oh, my cat is lost or something <laughs> like that. But, but not much going to happen that even gets into print. Um, and so just after 10 o'clock, the, the news editor comes rushing up uh, to me um, the news editor of the of the uh, Sunday Star at the time was a woman who I subsequently worked with, uh, Petra Thornycroft, and she comes running in and says, "You and you and you to the to the uh, to the juniors, my colleagues and I say, get get in the car now and go off to Don Park." And I'm I'm looking at her. I'm saying, "What's happening in Don Park?" She says, "Chris Honey has been murdered." Now, Chris Haney was so popular, Elizabeth, at the time, he was, you know, there was almost no doubt that he would have been Mandela's replacement if a, a you know, an election had been held in the ANC at that point. He was so popular, so loved, um, seen as a, as a genuine representative of young, old, uh, left, right-leaning Black South Africans and many white South Africans at the time. So, so the news that Chris Hani had been murdered was just—it uh, was shattering, and it was—it uh, left me kind of feeling cold, and 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 all these emotions about what is the meaning of this for the democratization process. Um, at that moment, I felt. This is going to stop it all. All that hope that I had held in my heart about what South Africa would look like, a future South Africa would look like, I felt like someone had just pulled the brakes on that. Nelson Mandela published his autobiography in 1994, the year he became president, titled The Long Walk to Freedom. Mm -hmm. And he writes, 
Chris's death was a blow to me personally and to the movement. He was a soldier and a patriot for whom no task was too small. He was a great hero among the youth of South Africa, a man who spoke their language and to whom they listened. If anyone could mobilize the unruly youth behind a negotiated solution, it was Chris. South Africa was now deprived of one of its greatest sons, a man who would have been invaluable in transforming the country into a new nation. The country was fragile. Yeah. It was it really was. Those words are so true. Um I think I think in a way Mandela was even in that language that he uses in Long Walk to Freedom was was being very controlled about his emotions. Um what what I know was that he was truly devastated. He yeah. he not only admired Chris Honey, he also you know, he saw a young Mandela in Chris Honey, he saw himself a little bit. And and he Mandela, a lot of people remember the Nelson Mandela who pushed reconciliation and so forth, which he did and was rightly did so. But Mandela, like Chris Honey, had gone through periods of huge militancy in the late 1940s. Mm-hmm. It led the ANC's biggest campaigns in the 1950s. And in Chris Hani, he saw exactly the same um, trajectory, uh, the same fire, if you will. Uh, and and he, uh, at some point uh, uh, later on in those days after the funeral, after the the killing of Chris Hani, he said he was like a son to me, and um, and I think he he felt that Mandela hugely admired him. He'd always take him along on meetings. Uh, where he was, particularly if he was speaking to young people who adored uh, Chris Hani, and so Mandela, Mandela felt that blow. And 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 where you end off with that quote, Elizabeth, about the country was in a fragile state. It really was because it's 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 almost an evil genius of the of the. Killers of Chris Hani. They well, knew that that's this, what they wanted, right? That was that that was their goal. Absolutely, and they were they were by by killing Chris Hani, they 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 were close. They were they were in the heart of the wound of South Africa. That they just stuck their finger in there. Um, I was thinking about this clearly, and what you write about, even though some of Nelson Mandela's actions after this, people wondered after the memorial service, he went out to a restaurant for lunch, you know, which people thought was sort of strange thing for him to do. But he, he also knew that there had to be some unrest in the country. I mean, he, he couldn't just, he had to let people let off the anger that they felt. Yes. I, I think that the, the almost unsaid genius of Nelson Mandela was was that he didn't see himself as a leader or, or his colleagues uh, in the ANC as people who had to tell people what to do. Um, in many ways, he he taught himself to listen to what people wanted. Part of the how shall I say traditions of South Africa are that either you corral people and put them in, in a box and say, 
you have to behave or you say you're going to express yourselves, you're going to grieve in the manner that you can. So, so I think Mandela's genius that we part of it was that in the days after he said, people will want to show that they are angry, they'll want to show that they are in in, in deep, deep mourning for Chris Hani. And so we we must lead them by holding memorial services, by holding rallies, by pull, calling them together and telling them that we are with you, we know what it's like, but this is where we need to take this thing. And the next steps would be, the next steps would be to ask for, to push for our demands. And our demands are an election date and a a transitional government that would oversee the the democr- the first democratic elections in South Africa. So, so even as the country was blowing up with protests and so forth, Nelson Mandela didn't believe that you say people must go home and shelter in place. He said, allow people to go to churches and listen to their priests and listen to their religious leaders um lead them in prayer and remember this this man who who, who they loved and and in many ways the, what what you're talking about you can see the the divergence between Mandela and Dietlerk in that week because they started off on the Saturday speaking to each other collaborating but the divergence comes when Dietlerk says you have to tell people to stay at home um, uh, in parts of the country, declaring a state of emergency, saying that, you know, the Justice and Elizabeth can talk to each other, but more than two people gathering is, is a crowd. And so that's enough. Um, uh, and so banning any kind of public uh, uh, gatherings and so forth. Mandela, on the other hand, saying, no, you've got to allow people to gather, to mourn with each other, to console each other. And, and in that way, they will, they will accept what has happened and what we are doing to lead them out of this, out of this crisis. And, and, and Dietlerk says no, he wants to call out the army. In fact, he does call out the army at some point. Mandela says no, 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 no. You will inflame people by doing that. You need to do it differently. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's the two styles of leadership. One that says no, people have to listen to me. Another that says no, people, you have to work with people and work with their grief. And that was the Mandela style. Of leadership, and that's where the two men and and their styles of leadership in that week you can see diverging. I was thinking about it in the context of the murder of George Floyd by a white police officer, mm-hmm. and that there was empathy, yeah. and there was global empathy, and people came together, which bothered a lot of people because the protests were integrated; they were black and white, yeah. and and it was also the question of proximity that in the case of the the people witnessed this going on and it was a woman did videotape it so that you you know you had this combination of proximity and empathy which is what happened uh in South Africa because it was actually a white 
woman who was able to get the license plate of the man who murdered Chris Hani. And so the police were able to capture him fairly soon. Absolutely. Um, that That is, and, and being able to see, <laughs> being able to see that moment for what it is, being able to say, this is the moment that makes all of us uh, that that brings humanity together. When when in the days after Chris Hani's murder, when people were talking of hate, um, when people were hyping up the hate that oh, Chris Hani, this you know, in South Africa, uh, among uh, uh, those who supported the apartheid governments of the past, you know, he was seen as a terrorist. He was branded a terrorist. Um, and so, and so, those days were about. Yeah, the terrorist Chris Hani has been murdered. Um, uh, people were glorifying his murderers. People were saying, "Yes, these guys did us a favor," and so forth. Nelson Mandela looked at that moment of hate and said, "Actually, look at this. Uh, it was a woman called Rieta Haramse, Africana woman, uh, uh, a white woman who." saw the murderer, saw the murderer's car, and and memorized the license plate and called the police. And so within 35, 40 minutes of the of the murder of Trishani, um, that car had been identified by two cops. They stopped uh Janus Valus um in the nearby town of Boxburg um and they had arrested him. And that was that was what Mandela saw, and he used that moment. Um, he used that moment to 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 rally the nation, to bring the nation together, and say, "Look what we together can achieve." And and that was in that week. There were many powerful moments, but the the powerful moment of that week, the one of the most powerful and one of the most memorable was when Mandela went on television for the second time that week, and that was three days after the murder. And he he read probably his shortest speech um, of all time, just, just about eight minutes long. Um, and in that speech, he used that speech to defang the, the, the merchants of hatred, if you will, by by essentially reminding South Africans that all of us wanted one thing, and that was a a free, a democratic uh, South Africa, uh, a South Africa that that where people like me could uh, could fulfill their promise, could could live as human beings without without the the strictures of apartheid, as it were. So I, I I know Elizabeth, you 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 asked me, shall I read that passage? Yes, I would I would like you to read that. And and this uh, he he just this was the start of the speech. So he 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 records the speech and and it's played on national television. Um, it was a historic moment. Mandela had been for. 30 years banned from being his voice being heard on radio or on television in South Africa. In fact, people like us 
if you had quoted Nelson Mandela as you did earlier on in the show, um, you'd have received a five-year sentence, uh, five-year in prison, just for quoting him in the years when he was um, uh, imprisoned. So, so this was quite a revolutionary moment in that Nelson Mandela on the Saturday of Trisandi's murder had been invited on to, to address the nation that evening. And when he got the facts of what actually happened, and Rieta Haramse was the white woman who, who uh, saw the killing and reported to the police, that's the, he wrote this, this uh, new statement and, and issued it to, to the nation. And he said, tonight I'm reaching out to every single South African, black and white, from the depths of my being. A white man full of prejudice and hate came to our country and committed a deed so foul that our whole nation now teeters on the brink of disaster. A white woman of African origin risked her life so that we may know and bring to justice this assassin. Now is the time for all South Africans to stand together against those who, from any quarter, wish to destroy what Rizani gave his life for, the freedom of all of us. And those words, I, I, I can't tell you, uh, Elizabeth, just how powerful those words were. Um, where Janice Wallace and his co-conspirators wanted to preach hate. Mandela was preaching love and, and empathy and togetherness. Um, where people were preaching division, he was preaching unity. And, and in that moment, people began to say, well, so we were being manipulated here. here. If the matter of Trisuhani was about setting fire to all of us, and we, we won't agree to that. And you, after that speech, you could see the mood beginning to change in South Africa, people beginning to say, Perhaps this is not just about black and white. It's about destroying this place, and we won't allow that. And 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 the change began to to take place over days, but but the message began to seep through to the nation. Anthony Sampson, in his biography of Mandela, writes that it was that speech that set against de Klerk's silence mm -hmm. that suggested that he already was the real leader and the protector of, of, of the peace. Mm. No, absolutely. It, it really, it, it changed the narrative and, and it kind of brought South Africa around the idea of a, uh, what in South Africa we call a non-racial democracy, what you uh, in the US would say is a multiracial democracy, but the idea that we are, stronger together, that we are we are one nation, we want one thing, and that is a peace that does not, um, a peace that is not the false peace of apartheid, uh, of separateness. It's, a, it's one where we move forward together. And I think that week and that speech was part of, of Mandela taking on that mantle and becoming the leader of that new nation. That, that unfolded over the next year. Now, you interviewed a number of people, and in fact, you interviewed de Klerk. Indeed, I did. Um, what was that like? 
You know, Ditlerk, there's still a huge debate about Ditlerk in South Africa because in the sense of what do leaders do and what do we remember people for? Ditlerk did something incredible. Um, His predecessors had refused to dismantle apartheid, had refused to acknowledge that that segregation and discrimination of the nature that was practiced in South Africa was was a a crime against humanity. They'd refused and refused over decades uh, to to even acknowledge the humanity of of black people. And so when Dietlerk became prime minister of South Africa in 1989, his first act was to um, begin dismantling apartheid, even though it was already under huge pressure and the world was changing. The Berlin Wall had fallen and so forth and so forth. But even then, he was the one leader who, who said, no, this is unworkable, and, and began that process. And together with Mandela over the next four years, um, with the ups and downs, you know, negotiated himself uh, out of power and uh, and served in the Mandela administration after that. So so in one sense, FW declared did, did a good thing. And it's not a small good thing. It's a big good thing. At the same time, people like Mandela, others, myself, over time have asked, yes, he did a good thing, but did he change? And and it's a big question. Did 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 Clark actually believe in the non-racial project, or did he believe in the survival of? And he wrote, he writes about it in his uh, biography. Uh, he wrote about it in his biography in the late nineties. Um, that I wanted to protect the Africana people, my people, as he called them. And so, and so interviewing Dietlerk, there was always been, and it's not the only time I'd interviewed him before on a, you know, on television and so mm. forth. But it was an interesting thing for me, reflecting on the book on whether Dietlerk had really ever changed his views and become a non-racialist. A, and I think he tried, and I think he moved close. And after, after he died, he released a video in which he apologized for apartheid and said, uh, and acknowledged just how horrific a system it was. But interviewing him, he was still mired in, in how bad was apartheid, and he he would hedge his bets a little bit and so forth. So so it was interesting. But I I'm I'm grateful to to him for for agreeing to be interviewed, uh, particularly because I you know I struggled with some other people to to find to to interview, and I interviewed many, but many others that I hoped to interview um, didn't want to talk about that time of of South Africa's transition. So. Uh, I still don't know whether in my interview I I got to understand Dietlerk any better. Um, and, and I'm still wondering if Dietlerk 
changed. Certainly people around him, people like Ulf Meyer, you know, the, the, the profundity of being in that process and seeing how their past had had conditioned them so badly, conditioned them so badly to believe that black people were not human enough or, or whatever it was that system had had conditioned them into. I could see that these are people who had been changed by how profound the process they'd gone through was. But in the case of Dittlerk, I wasn't, I'm not sure that I, I, I know that he, he changed. Whereas people like Mandela also changed. You know, they, they came out of prison saying, these are my opponents and I'm going to negotiate with them. I'm going to win. But I think Mandela's big moment over those four years was that he changed and said, these are my people too, and I've got to, I know that they've got fears, and I have to accommodate them in whatever the settlement of the day will be. So you can see some of these people, big characters, amazing human beings, changing. But but in the case of Dittlerk, he remains an enigma for me uh, mm-hmm. in that. I don't I don't see his change. I and I didn't feel it even after I spoke to him. Another person who plays a role in your book is Muhammad Ali, who, <laughs> who had planned this glorious trip to South Africa to meet Mandela and to be yeah. honored and to go around. And of course, Mandela had been a boxer, so you know, loved the idea of, of yeah. having him there. And when he I think he arrived on the day Chris Hani was assassinated. Yes, absolutely. So, so before before I I talk about him being there, just quickly, I have to tell you about about um, Muhammad Ali and South Africa and 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 the contradiction sometimes of apartheid. So, one of the things about apartheid was that oh, keep keep black kids away from politics, get them interested in sport and so forth. So, so the the government would say for those of us like me who were in school. Um, They'd sent around a, a a little truck with a with a projector, and they'd have ten minute reels of Muhammad Ali, for example, boxing, and you know, and it would be yeah, encourage these kids to get into boxing instead of fighting against apartheid. So Muhammad Ali, in the late in the seventies and early eighties, you know, was someone before television. Um, in South Africa, was someone who was this big figure for me and for many others. He was a hero. But part of the the ignorance of the apartheid government was that these reels also contained Muhammad Ali talking about, oh, I won't serve in Vietnam, or I will not, um, that I'm going to stand up against segregation. That Muhammad Ali was actually... (laughs) more incendiary and more more revolutionary than Nelson Mandela probably <laughs> and yet he was being shown at my school as a kid and so so he was an absolute massive hero and so that trip that he was undertaking to South Africa and he arrived as you say uh, on the 10th of April about the same time that Chris Hani was murdered uh, that's when his his flight was landing 
uh, at Johannesburg Airport. And so, and so many of us had just been so excited about Muhammad Ali's coming to South Africa, this great hero of, of, uh, of many of us. Um, and, and, you know, in that week, uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, he visited the family of Chris Hani, but increasingly over the week as South Africa gets into bigger and bigger protests and, uh, and all the events uh, happen, Muhammad Ali basically abandons his program for the week and just becomes part of the leaders and the people who are who are celebrating and commemorating Krishani. Uh, he goes to the funeral, he visits the family, and so forth and so forth. Um, what you explore in your riveting book, once you've started reading it, I absolutely could not put it down just as I just kept reading. Is Thank you know, not that it's not it's not just the relationship between Mandela and de Klerk and Mandela handling his grief, because he also he was also, you know, he hadn't been separated from his beloved wife, Winnie, which, you know, was also difficult for him, but also the conspiracy theories. Was the government involved and who was involved? And just like the Kennedy assassination or the King, there's still theories about what happened that we will never know, probably. No, absolutely. And 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 around Chris Hani, you know, this year, uh, 2023, is, uh, is 30 years since, since Chris Hani was murdered. And... Mm-hmm. And as you say, and the, some of the people you reference, the conspiracy theories are still huge. Uh, yeah. I went to South Africa on a tour for this book, and and half the questions in the room are about justice. Do you, do you think so-and-so did it? How do you think so-and-so benefited? Um, so part of the, you know, looking forward to today about that week is that it's had a massive, massive impact on the ANC, the ANC's leadership. Um, in South African politics today, if I want to besmirch your name, uh, I would say, oh, Elizabeth was, where was Elizabeth in the week of, of the murder? Mm-hmm. And if you were not there or showing your grief, it's easy to just say, yeah, well, um, could it be that she benefited from it? And and it's used as a political tool, as a tool to besmirch people. Um, the current president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, gets accused of being, oh, where were you? Uh, he was there, actually. Or the former president, uh, 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 Jacob Zuma, and the former the president before him, uh, uh, Beki. All of them are still being eaten up by this conspiracy theories. And Mandela, same thing, in that week, people still say, but, uh, well, a breakthrough came out of this murder, so was Mandela involved, or this, and so forth. So, So in that week, in many ways, Mandela had to say, there will always be the noise of conspiracy and so forth. But we'll continue. We'll we'll keep going. Uh, uh, but but these questions continue to roil South Africa. Uh, the family of Trisvani is still in pain because questions come up. Questions don't get answered. Um, 
and and um, and here we are, fifty years later. The pain, the pain remains. It's still hard. Well, Yanush Wallace was just—he served what twenty-seven years in was it twenty-seven or twenty-eight years in prison and was released in December. So he's now out on parole. But you know, interesting that he was stabbed in the cafeteria at the prison. But you know, when his parole had been announced. Yeah, I'm certain that's difficult because he he was going to be executed and then he got a life sentence. Um, Janus Wallace was is a beneficiary of of a free, democratic, human rights led South Africa. So he went on trial together with Clive W. Lewis, his accomplice, mm-hmm. um, in 1993 at the end of the year. South Africa at the time had the death penalty. Six months later, Nelson Mandela became president of South Africa. And his first act was to say, we are, we are outlawing the death penalty in South Africa. The state will never kill anyone. Um, uh, and and that's it. We are done with that. So... Janus Wallace, who would have been uh, killed by the state, was saved from the gallows by that. Um, The new constitution was written immediately afterwards, and the new constitution says, in South Africa, we try to rehabilitate people. We don't, we don't, vengeance is not part of the vocabulary of of the state, we don't want to uh, seek revenge for what people have done. We want to show them and get them out of uh, what they have done. So uh, he became eligible for parole within about 15, 16 years of being sentenced in 1993. Um, The family said, this man has not given us the entire truth. This man has not uh, shown remorse. Um, he's not rehabilitated, and so they opposed it. Um, until last year, in December, when even with the family saying, um, we don't want him to be released, and we have a voice and a say in this, the Constitutional Court, the equivalent of in the U.S., the Supreme Court said, um, this man has served enough time that we do not believe that anything is served by him continuing in prison. And so he is free because the new constitution um, places human rights, um, the rights of everyone, including prisoners like him, um, um, above sometimes the, the, the cries of of the family, for example, um, and and the constitutional rule that he must be he must be released, and so he was released. So, in many ways, the irony of the whole thing is that is that the people who murdered Chris Hani have benefited so much from the constitution that he fought for, uh, that he wanted to see uh, become part of South Africa. Janus Valus is really a, a, a major beneficiary of that constitution. He was mm-hmm. saved from the gallows. He was saved from prison uh, or, or, or death in prison uh, by that constitution. And in all in all these things, it's because of that constitution that he is free uh, today. 
Of course, you can't read this book and not think about January 6th and how divided America is. We have our red states and our blue states. And you just wonder if Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and Archbishop Tutu were alive, these figures with moral authority uh, and a voice and and a desire to bring people together, what they could do and perhaps how they could help. I've thought about this so much, Elizabeth, because I think I think part of part of the beauty of history is that it it shows us so much of what we can be today and where, where we can go. Um, there is so much in in South African history uh, with regards to this book in that week of Mandela's, the crisis that Mandela and Hitler and South Africa faced, that that I see elements of in, in the United States. When you mention um, January 6th, you know, in the weeks uh, after the murder of Trishani and the, the events I described in this book, um, Almost exactly the same number of uh, people uh, who invaded uh, uh, the capital um, invaded the venue where Mandela and Dietlerk were negotiating. Um, they they drove a, a the equivalent of a Humvee into into the building. Um, they. They walked around beating up uh, the negotiators and journalists. They walked around with guns saying, where are they? Where's Declerc? Um, uh, he's a traitor. Why is he negotiating with Mandela and so forth? Um, and and it's, it's almost as if the script was written by exactly the same people. So, so the division and, the, and the, uh, the partisanship that you see um, uh, that is driven in many instances by fear of the future, by hate of others, are things that in history we've seen before and, and great leaders have managed to, to lead their people out of those kinds of uh, um, uh, challenges. So, so I think a lot about leadership and, and what what. The, the moral authority that you speak about, uh, the kind of values-driven ethical leadership that is needed at times like these, whether it's here, whether it's other parts of the world, I think I think we can learn so much from what other leaders have done. And and you know, people, the people you mentioned, Mandela, Tutu, I think were pivotal in helping South Africa come through those divisions. Um, I think. Many leaders here would be would learn a lot by looking at some of these events and saying, uh, "We too can find a different path out of out of what we we face today." I think I think we're going through a a period of of hate across the globe, not just in the U.S. I think there are you know these paramilitary groups and so forth. They pose a threat, but I think they, they 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 exist in Europe. They exist in parts of South Africa, um, uh, all over the world. You see the resurgence of this, uh, of this kinds of these kinds of sentiments and hatreds and and kind of 
regression even uh, into into places that we thought we we had moved on from. So so I think this is the time when history can help us uh, come out of these challenges. Um, I don't think the United States, for example, should be going through what is going through with the kinds of divisions politically that exist, given the depth of knowledge and history that it can tap into in the world. Um, given what it has gone through, uh, the fact that Martin Luther King um, was murdered pretty much for saying and advocating for what today we take as given. Um, uh, mm. We shouldn't be going back back there. The world shouldn't be going back there. And so, and so I think there is a lot to learn um, from these events. And I think that I think leadership today should be rising up uh, rather than uh, sinking into the depths of of hate. I, I, I have to say, I see the reactions of some leaders today, and I think it's easy to it's easy to be populist. It's easy to to um, to beat down on poor people, on people without uh, without papers, on people who are uh, minorities. Uh, to beat down on on all kinds of people who who are in danger in the world. The 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 mark of a good of a great leader, the mark of of a real leader, is one who who says, "I have things to challenge, and perhaps I can challenge uh, the wealthy, the 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 powerful, to do something about the problems that we face." Instead of blaming. Um, uh, people who are trying to find uh, asylum in the U.S. or find asylum in Europe and blaming them for lack of jobs or this or that—that that, that's not leadership. Those are those are populist, um, hate-driven, easy um, uh, solutions. They don't—they're not the mark of a great leader at all. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you, Justice, because I want more people to read your book. I I think that there are so many um, subtle <laughs> lessons because we're not talking about America. But if you read this book, you really understand. I am so grateful to have lived um, at the time that Nelson Mandela led South Africa in that in so many instances. Um, he showed that it's not about being popular, it's about doing the right thing at the right time. And 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 it's what the world needs. So so people like yourself and others who agitated, pushed for Nelson Mandela to be released from prison, that in itself wasn't a popular choice, uh, certainly not under Ronald Reagan or others who, you know, we were dragging their feet in supporting uh, uh, change in South Africa. But a good thing was done, and that good thing led to many other good things. It led to the freedom of people like me. Uh, and it, it's it's something that I don't take for granted. And I think I think the lessons from that process uh, is something that the world can can learn from, certainly. Thank you, Justice.
If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions. Oh, see, see again. Every